2: There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Ion Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy Vet Phil Briggs, and again, we're going to have a great conversation about one of my favorite book series the action thrillers starring Pike, Logan, and the Special Forces, former Delta Force. Army veteran author behind them all, Brad Taylor. And uh, in this latest explosive thriller entitled The Devil's Ransom, Pike Logan, the action star of all of these books, he's a former spec ops officer. And Logan and the task force race to stop an insidious attack orchestrated by a man who knows America's most treasured secrets. It involves cyber hacking. It involves Afghanistan. It involves a chase scene that goes from Tajikistan to Croatia to all over the planet. It'll raise your blood pressure. So here to unpack this whole story, Special Forces veteran, Brad Taylor. How the hell are you, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Indeed. And, you know, as I said there in the lead, every time I read one of these things, I get super, super anxious because if we just look back at a few of the other books of yours on my shelves, American trader talked about heightened tensions with China Mm -hmm. and then it happened you sort of ominously predict things in the future with these books, with an uncanny accuracy, even though it's fiction. But give me the 30,000-foot view of The Devil's Ransom, and then we'll dive into a couple things.
1: Yeah, the idea for Devil's Ransom came, uh, I was reading a news story. There's a a company in Israel called NRO, and they make a malware program called Pegasus, which is a zero-click type malware. In other words, you don't need to Click on a a weird text or you don't get a Google alert that you click on. The social engineering aspect is not there. And it can turn an Android phone or a uh, iPhone into basically a listening device. They can see everywhere you go. They can track you. They can turn the camera on. They can turn the microphone on. Just basically own the phone. Well, they said they'd only sell it to uh, good guys, nation states that were good people. Well, now the Mexican drug cartels are using it. And UAE had it. And they had a thing called Project Raven which was manned with a bunch of ex NSA guys from the United States, American citizens. And it turned out that UAE was now using it. They were targeting dissidents, They were targeting journalists. And in one case, they targeted American citizens. Uh, and those guys that were running project Raven, by the way, they all got arrested. They're in jail now, pled guilty. But um, that was what got me thinking about. It. I was like, that's a pretty interesting thing to start uh, a story with. And so I started doing research on it. And then I ran into the malware of uh, ransomware, which was 10 times worse than this little bitty thing here. And I thought, but so ransomware right now is still social engineering. You'll get an email that says, hey, did you change your password? And you're going to click on that. And boom, next thing you know, you've locked up all the computers. But it's an insidious threat. And I thought, you know, what if they came up with a, a zero-click ransomware? Then we'd really be in trouble. It'd be hard to stop because, you, you, you know, you can educate your people in your uh, businesses of don't click on anything that's strange. Don't click on anything strange. But if they could do a zero-click without a click on it, and they've taken. They took down the colonial pipeline. They've taken down, uh, you know, all kinds of hospitals. They took down the largest meat packer in the world on two different continents, us and Australia. They took down the country of Costa Rica for three days uh, when they hit the capital down there. Uh, just last week, uh, United Kingdom's postal service got hit with ransomware. They can't mail any packages right now. So it's a pretty insidious threat. And that's uh, I started to go. I went that way. So Pegasus is still in there a little bit, but it's nowhere near the story. Ransomware is now the story.
2: Wow. Okay, so there's such things as a real zero-click malware, and there are such things as ransomware. The good news is they are not the same thing in real life, but that's where this story kind of takes hold. Yeah. Wow, I'm already scared. See what I'm saying, Brad? I'm, I'm hoping this doesn't come to fruition, but
1: it could come um, to pass. I mean, that's the uh, the ransomware problem set itself is is twofold. Uh, number one, there's ransomware gangs that are running around out there, and they're just trying to make money. They're usually the Russians or somebody like that, Eastern European. But number two, nation states do it all the time. So uh, North Korea does it to us, Iran does it to us, and Russia certainly does it to us. And they, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to pinpoint that a nation state is behind it when they can just say, you know, oh, it's just a bunch of criminals. That's not us. Why are you blaming us? Well, you can always kind of trace it back if they get some the forensics on it and figure out who was doing it. And so I intertwine that in the story as well.
2: Yeah. Um. We open up the story with something kind of much older school. We're at an archaeological dig site in Tajikistan. Pike Logan and Jennifer Cahill, his wife, his female confidant, his equal there on the task force team. She's a mercenary. She's trained. And they're there kind of on, I don't want to say a Full on vacation, but I was interested to note that the book starts off with a cover operation. One, are those things real? And two, kind of dive into what you know the genesis of the story while they're in Tajikistan.
1: Yeah, I. Um, well, I'm not going to tell you. a lot of that stuff. I'm not going to start spilling secrets of what the CIA does and all that kind of stuff. But basically, yeah, cover development trips are real. So if you're going to go somewhere in deep cover, depending, it no doesn't matter who you work for, CIA, you know, uh, SOCOM, whoever, your cover's got to stand up to scrutiny. So if you say you're a, a used car dealer and you show up in Russia and you don't have a used car lot and you don't know anything about cars, you've never looked at shop for cars or anything like that, it falls apart. So you have to do these trips where you actually do what you say you you do in real life before you do a trip where you're going to use the cover to you know, put some terrorist head on a spike. So anytime mm-hmm. someone's looking at, at Grow Your Recovery Services, which is Pike's company, he can back up everything he says because look, I was into Tajikistan last year. I helped this university over here in France the year before. I was down in Guatemala. I found some temples down there. Uh, so it helps him, you know, gives his company legitimacy. But I wasn't even going to start the. Uh, I mean, I started off in uh, Afghanistan. I, I wasn't going to touch that with a ten-foot pole. My publisher asked me, you know, you're going to write about Afghanistan? I was like, no, I am not writing about Afghanistan. It's a little bit raw. It's a lot of raw for a lot of people. And I was like, I'm not. I'm not going to write about that. And I was, well, of course, I was reading about Afghanistan, keeping up on everything that was going on. And they, I came across this thing called the Bactrian treasure, which is real. It's a real thing. So in the late 70s, the Soviets, uh, Soviet archaeologists found these tombs in the upper steppes of Afghanistan. They found stuff from all over the Silk Road. So they had like daggers from Serbia and jewels from China and just all over the place, Greek stuff, Roman stuff. And it was just a great find. And so it went down, they put it in the presidential palace, and it was kind of like, look what we got here. We got our own King Tut stuff going on. Well, then the Soviet Union invaded way back when. And then when they left in 89, the treasure disappeared. And everybody just kind of figured Soviets just stole it. You know, when they left, they stole it. So then you fast forward 2001, and we topple the Taliban. Government comes in, stands up, and this guy comes out of, of, of a uh, to the president's palace. He's literally the key master. He had hidden the treasure underneath a bank vault in Kabul and had been there all those years. He said, "Hey, I got to show you guys something." So he unlocks the vault, and there's the Bakshian treasure. It's like holy moly, it's been here this whole time, and he never told anybody. He didn't tell the Taliban because he thought for sure they'd steal it and all that. He just kept a secret. So then it became, it went on a worldwide tour. Went to China. Went to you know San Francisco, Paris, like a King Tut tour. And uh, then we left Afghanistan just recently, and it disappeared again. And the Taliban said, "We're going to cut everybody's heads off. We're going to find out where the stuff is." And I was like, well, that's enough interesting story. I could use that. So I don't know where the treasure is for real life, but I know where it is in my book.
2: I to do it, <laughs> And I found that super cool. The fact that, again, we start off sort of talking about this ominous cyber hack attack that can happen with ransomware. And it's also woven together with a story of this ancient artifact. I almost likened to Ark of the Covenant. What a cool weave. I don't want to give too, too much away. But the chase ensues to find, one, these hackers. And two, this Bactrian treasure. And like all of your stories, there's like three or four people chasing people all at the same time. In this case, the task force, Pike Logan and his team, Knuckles, Veep, Jennifer, you know, they're on the rock star bird, and they're trying to find the assets that are the hackers. And then there's another group, and I found this written with such detail that I know you've probably personally experienced, but the group from Afghanistan, the Taliban's henchmen that are trying to find this treasure. Um I want to say there's are the Badri 313. Yeah.
1: If you remember when the airport fell and there was all these guys running around, they looked like U.S. soft. They had on multicam uniforms, pockets on the sleeve, Peltor headsets, M4s, not AKs. That's the Badri 313 battalion. And that's what, uh, the, they're the ones that did most of the fighting. They were pretty good fighters. And they were not your average Taliban goather. They were trained to do that. And they and they also had a component, obviously, of suicide bombings as well. But They're pretty good fighters, and they're they're the ones that were doing the Brunnen fighting, fighting our Kondaks that we were training. When there was a fierce fight going on, it was about our 313 guys that were doing it.
3: One of the men cursed him, then smacked him in the head again, slamming him to the floor. The airport is held by the Americans. They're trying to get everyone out. We can't penetrate without a fight. Sirajidin waved his hand and said, My job is internal security, and we've lost two things I want you to get back.
2: Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and today we're talking with the action thrill author, Special Forces veteran, and former Army commando Brad Taylor. The series of books features a spec ops, CIA-like character, Pike Logan, whose dramatic storylines are a lot like a Jason Bourne movie. But the inspiration for this fiction comes from the real life of Brad Taylor, who served on the elite team known as Operational Detachment Delta, which is sort of like the DOD's 911 team. We recently discussed his latest novel, The Devil's Ransom, which tracks Pike Logan's covert task force as they seek to dismantle a group of terrorist hackers, stop a deadly space shuttle crash, and avoid being taken out by hostile Taliban commandos who are also on the hunt. We jump back into the part of the interview where we discuss the scenes he researched in Croatia.
1: We started out in Zagreb. I rented a car
2: and drove down
1: the coast and hit every town along the way. Some of the towns didn't make it. Zadar, we spent a night there. Did a lot of research there. Didn't make it in the book. Split did. Cleese Fortress is in there. Uh, Havar's in there. Korkchula's in there. Dubrovnik, all those. Because I, I was on the ground just finding that stuff.
2: Yeah. And you can tell anybody that's a real hyper super fan of yours uh, to go on Google search and go on Google maps while you're listening to the book or reading it. And it's a trip. I was following along, trying to find the tunnel, trying to find art park. I was like zooming in and looking at all these landmarks you mentioned in Croatia. I guess my first question is why Croatia, when we talk of Russian funded cyber hackers is that a home is that nation state a home for people like this i mean i don't want to throw shade no. at croatia i'm not i'm not trying to say that no. the Croatia's a bad no. country uh, but do they live in countries like this just kind of out in the open but they're really staying at an airbnb for months at a time and people have no idea that that's what they're doing
1: yeah well the, the ransomware groups themselves the one are one or just out for profit that you know the guys that are just stealing stuff they kind of blend and come and go and come and go so you can have a group they're attacking, they're attacking, and the two guys in there are really smart. Well, they may disappear, and I'm going to go to this guy's group, and you're going to that guy's group, because they're just criminals. They're just running around. It blends back and forth. A lot of time, the ransomware guys will say uh, they hit somebody, and they get hot on their heels. For instance, REvil was the one to hit uh, um, Costa Rica, and we put them on a list. When that happened, we're like, okay, we're going after those guys. Well, as soon as that happened, they said, we're no longer doing ransomware. We disbanded. Well, did they really disband? No, they just went somewhere else, changed the name, started up again, but they, they no longer want to be associated with what happened in, in uh, Costa Rica. And uh, I, Croatia was, uh, um, it's not known as a hub of that. Uh, I just picked it because I knew that there's a, a you know there's a large Serbian population there. There's obviously with Bosnia and all that right there, it seemed to fit. So that's why I picked it.
2: Hmm. Interesting. The pictures, by the way, as I'm going along and following along with the book through tunnel chases and chases through parks, and your mention again of uh, I want to say the Radisson Blue Hotel, um, yeah. is it a fun place to travel? Like uh, now that you know we're kind of free to move about the country and the world yeah. uh, I, with I travel,
1: so I took my family back there for vacation the next year. Really, a, my first trick is I mean it's not a vacation. You were flying. I'm spending. You know, you could spend three days in Cortula looking everything. I spend about eight hours when I see everything. It's Get in a car, get on the ferry, head over to somewhere else. Because there's, uh, like I say, what I usually say is there's, there's 50% that I'm looking for. So when I leave to go to the book research trip, I've got a list of things I want to know about. But there's stuff that's looking for me that I don't even know exists. And I, if I just used Google Earth or something, I'd never find it. I just wouldn't know. For instance, the tunnel, that's, it's a World War II uh, underground bunker they used to protect all the, the people uh, from air raids from the Nazis. It's still there. It's open. You can see it. And I didn't know anything about it. When I found it, I was like, well, that's going in the book. I mean, I'm definitely going to use this thing. Uh, There's a place called Molly Stone, uh, and it's uh, uh, my next-door neighbor in Charleston is from Bosnia. and said, you've got to stop at Molly Stone, this restaurant. It's the best restaurant ever. They have the best muscles in the world. And so we uh, were driving. We are going by. It turns out Molly Stone means little stone, and there's another village called Stone. And it is ringed by – they say it's the largest fortification outside of the Great Wall of China. It is a big, long wall that rings both villages. And you can walk it. I mean, you just pay a little a couple of gizzies and you can walk all the way across. Well, we were going there for the restaurant. When I saw that fortification, I said, well, I can definitely use that in the book. I now mean, we already had a scene in my head. In fact, it's in the book just about exactly like I figured it would be.
3: The wall was exactly like you'd expect. A stone hunk of stairways leading up and over the mountain between Molly Stone and Stone. They were on this wall just like I was, and there was no reason to suspect us, as plenty of tourists were doing the same thing. They were about a hundred meters ahead of us and steadily trudging uphill. They kept climbing, and Jennifer said, What do you suppose this is all about? Why take them on a walk? They wanted to break themselves from the surveillance. And they just did.
2: (laughs) That's cool. Another thing you mentioned in there, uh, a mural of Gulliver being tied to the ground or tied up. And then there's not too far from that J.R. Tolkien's bar or Tolkien's yeah. bar and another things were those both bars and that mural on the wall. Were those all places that you'd went and you'd had a beer or.
1: Yeah, they're right. I, I know they're definitely there. Yeah. The uh, actually the Tolkien bar we went into and they weren't open yet. What was happening? We, had, we went in there and I was going to use the Tolkien bar because it's a really cool bar um but they didn't open until like six or something like that so i was like "Eh, oh well i took some pictures and said maybe i'll use it so that just became kind of a landmark and we went to a different bar in the book that i actually did sit at and have a beer the cafe bar i asked a guy you know where i don't want to go where the tourists are where is a locals speakeasy and that was that cafe and you it's impossible to find there's no signs or anything we started going up the stairs and we're walking around we're like somehow or another I think we missed it. Do you think it's in somebody's apartment? I mean, it took a while to find that thing. In fact, in the book, they had to go back and forth. That's because I had to go back and forth to find the damn thing.
2: Yeah, and in fact, in one scene where I think it's Jennifer Cahill that's trying to be overwatch or do something up on a balcony, and they finally get up there, and they look down there, and they see low uh, below them are a patio tables and umbrellas. And they're like, how did we miss this? We walked yeah, right by it. Story. Because it's <laughs> We actually looked over, and I was like, there's a restaurant below us. And I was like, we came in the front door. Where that restaurant? Where was it? It's crazy. And to think that those things were all built, you know, we consider an old town in America, like Baston, you know, a couple hundred yeah. years old. These towns go back uh, yeah. a couple thousand years. So, well,
1: that one thing. is It's full of history. And like Cliss Fortress is in there. There's a bunch of Split is in there. Very old. The, the, the palace there. And unfortunately, it's, they filmed so much Game of Thrones over there. That's all it's known for now. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. So you look at this fortress that was built like in the 11th century on top of this mountain. And it's just awe inspiring. Like, how on earth did they build this without any, you know, modern day stuff? And then you get up there and there's a bunch of dragons and it's Game of Thrones. It's where they filmed the Game of Thrones. And it's now a tour stop for Game of Thrones. Underneath Split, they have a, a cellar where they used to keep all the goods cool and all that kind of stuff. It's ancient. It's been there forever right there on the waterfront. Uh, now it's known that's where the dragons were kept that's where they filmed the dragons (laughs) so everywhere we went there was some game of thrones thing i was like you gotta be kidding me they were doing whole tours for game of thrones you do a game of thrones
2: stop and there was one there was one quote from one of the characters in the book that questioned as he tried to like break out of some secret exit from that castle built on right. the hill and he and he breaks out and I think he's questioning in his own mind like, would the people that had defended this and built this twelve hundred, thirteen hundred years ago, would they be happy knowing it's now only known to mankind because right. of an
1: it's HBO different. special? Right. That's kind of what I felt like when I was up there because it's I love old stuff like that. And they, you know, they had um telescopes so if you put a quarter in, it would do a hologram of a dragon and all this. And I'm like, you're ruining it, man. It's This is a fortress. Who cares about Game of Thrones?
2: (laughs) And I found it a trip to know from you right now that like, it really is like that. There are are tourists from around the world all just going there to see the Game of Thrones set that they've already seen on their TV, but yet it is, in fact, a real thing. And it kind of blows my mind that HBO went to the extent to make Game of Thrones to find this castle in Croatia, which, you know, I'd never even heard of. Yeah, so, I,
1: so that was one place I was definitely going to go to. I, I did some research on that. But what's kind of cool about it is HBO, because they've got Buku money. They, uh, You could tell that they, the whole backside of the castle, which is now modern offices for the upkeep, Game of Thrones paid for all that. So that was their set. That's where the, they did their script readings and things like that. So it's a big conference room and all this stuff. But I know Croatia said, sure, you can use a castle. You build us all this stuff for free. And they did.
2: And they're more than welcome to film at my house too speaking of that if they'd like to do something on the back of the house it'd be fine now we're talking with an army veteran former spec ops commando and best-selling author brad taylor about his new book the devil's ransom the scenes often feel like hollywood action movies with details that only someone with combat experience can write effectively
3: he had a quick glimpse of a man behind a computer and four other people in the room. A man to his right immediately locked up the wrist holding his pistol, slamming it into the door jam. It went off, the bullet ricocheting from the stone and hitting the man behind the computer. He fell out of the chair while two other men rushed forward with their own guns drawn. Shakur fought for his pistol, only to have his elbow torqued in a joint lock, the pistol falling to the ground. The man swung in a tight circle, using the joint lock of Shakur's wrist and elbow to force him to follow, or else have his joints splinter. He felt the pain and screamed, diving in the air to try to relieve the pain. Just before it shattered, his attacker released him, flinging him against the two men trying to enter and throwing all of them back into the stairwell. We talked
2: more about the book, which tracks Pike Logan and his elite task force made up of former SEALs, Delta operators, and the like. Taylor describes how some of the scenes include things that are actually used by elite U.S. forces. I'd never heard of a radar scope, but in one attempt to determine if this apartment is occupied, I think it's Knuckles uh, pulls out a radar scope. What in the heck's a radar scope? How big is it, and is it real?
1: It's yeah, it's real, and it's about. Well, it's probably super small now. I mean, the one I described is one I know about, but that's that was you know 2012. Lord knows it's probably the size of a thimble now. But it's basically it's just a, a motion detector that'll see through concrete. Cinder blocks, anything in there, and it detects motion inside a room. And so if you want to know if a room's occupied, you just use a radar scope and go down the wall. And when I say it detects motion, it will detect the rise and fall of your chest as you breathe. If somebody's alive in the room, it's going to ping on it and say there's somebody in this room. Because you can't help but, you know, when you breathe, your chest moves, it'll pick
2: it up. Uh and they were just using it to see if the house was empty. Oh, so cool. And you don't get that from, you know, regular authors. You gotta be a guy like you. You gotta be a former operator to know some of this hardware. Um, the other probably, cool thing
1: probably super cool now. I mean, I, if I somebody's probably gonna read this book as current right now and go, well, that thing he's he's talking about it being this big. What's he talking about? That's cool. stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny how every year they get cooler and newer toys. Um, another one that's on the Rockstar bird that I found totally interesting is how we can be found via our cell phone, but it wasn't through our cell number, which is tied to our SIM card. How would a plane be able to find and geolocate a cell phone anywhere in the world with just one number? What is that number? And talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Well, your phone has two different things. It's got the MZ, International Mobile Subscriber Identity, which is basically your phone number, which is tied to the SIM card. And you have, have an IMEI, which is International Mobile Equipment Identifier which is tied to the hardware of your phone. When you're trying to find somebody's phone, you want to use the IMEI because he can pull that SIM card out, hand it to a friend who didn't make a call. You're chasing that SIM card. It's not the guy you want. It's, you're following something that's not there. But the IMEI, from his handset, you know it's his phone, um, no matter what SIM card he puts in there. But the problem is the IMI is very hard to get. It's, it's not really broadcast out or anything. You've got to do something to get the IMI of the phone. Your computer has one. Anything that's electronic has an IMI. If it touches uh, Wi-Fi or anything like that, it'll have one. And that's how you can use track it. And it, it's pretty simple. All the, the, the MZ Grabber, all it does is turn the um, – it fakes a cell tower. That's all it's doing. So your phone's down, down here. I'm in a hotel right now. and And I'm trying to call, if the plane was doing racetracks and, uh, you know, mowing the sky, as we would call it, it'll pick up. The phone will say, oh, there's the nearest tower, and it'll hook up to the plane. Well, as soon as it hooks up to the plane, it's sucking up everybody's phones, but it's just dropping. them. I mean, to the person on the ground, it's just seamless. It goes up, drop, goes up, drop, goes up, drop. The one I want goes up, boom, hold that phone. Well, now it's just like the old-fashioned radio direction finding. You, You do it from this way, and you do it from that way, and you do it from this way until you've got three vectors, and that's where he's there.
2: So that's why they do several yeah. mow in the sky. That's why they go from several different angles to triangulate where exactly this little ping is coming from, from this yeah. long IMEI number that is buried deep within the inner workings of my phone. Wow. What a trip. I, I suppose my other question is, have you ever used stuff like that in the real world? But I know the answer I'm going to get.
1: Yeah, I can't. <laughs> so, hey, what cool, we, I mean, police officers use it now. so. The MZ grabbers in Washington, D.C., they're all over the place, and everybody's kind of – nobody knows who owns them. So, you know, the Russians are putting them out there. The you know Saudis are putting them out there. The Chinese are putting them out there. We're putting them out there, and uh, you can find them all over the place in Washington, D.C. It's like an MZ grabbing heaven.
2: No way. So spooky real-world fact is I'm being observed, or, or like my phone number is one of billions – that are being observed on a daily basis. If I go in and out of the they'll D.C. Get, area, you'll
1: get sucked in and kicked out because if they don't want your right. number, you'll get sucked right. in. And kicked out. But cops use it nowadays. I mean, it's pretty standard stuff. Now, if you're trying to find a criminal uh, and he's using, a, um, you can track his phone through the cell network, through the phone company. So Verizon, tell me where he was last. Well, he have got a ping in Montana uh, and then they'll go over to Montana. Now they're going to use the NC grabber to narrow that down to where is he specifically. Um, wow look at the killings that just happened they have his phone all over the place that's how they were finding that guy yeah the fbi was tracking him because his phone was going across the country with his father they're tracking that as it goes along
2: we also weave into this a little bit of narrative about private space travel and they are headed to the international space station and i could kind of tell from the characters that they weren't real fond of rich billionaire industrialist just wanting to play astronaut. Talk to me a little bit about how this gets woven into the story. And uh, what are your feelings also on on these billionaire industrialists that just want to joyride in outer space?
1: Everybody gets to go into space. I, well, the first thing that aggravates me kind of is they're like,
2: he's a self-made
1: billionaire. He's made you know, whoever it is, Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, whichever one you want to pick. Well, they're getting that they're able to do that because of NASA. NASA's given them enormous contracts. If there, if there was no International Space Station, if there was no NASA, there would be no SpaceX. He's not just doing that. I mean, he's he's getting paid to do it. It's basically welfare for him to make these rockets. Um, but they the Russians have already, they've sent civilians up to the space station. Now, granted, the crew that flew it was actual cosmonauts. But civilians went up there, they made, they made a movie on the space station for the Russian audience. Uh, Tom Cruise, I think, is going up to the space station to do a movie. Um, so it's getting more and more... You know, it happens over and over again. So I just started to thread that in there. I thought that would be a good thing for ransomware to hit.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. And you can imagine the tension of a ransomware attack affecting the computers on the ground while this space capsule orbits the Earth with lives hanging in the balance. And of course, the work being done at the International Space Station. So I
1: did all the research on ransomware and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Make sure I'm super accurate. But, you know, I've seen Paul 13. I don't need to do any research on that. I mean, how hard can that be? Well, it turns out I, was, I had no idea about any of this. You know how long it takes to get to the space station? Three days. Six hours. The record's three hours. So my mind, because I've seen Apollo 13 and they were up in space for seven days, I can drag this all the way out. And then it turns out, you know, they're going to orbit because it takes me uh, eight hours to drive across the state of Texas. Surely it takes a whole day to orbit the entire Earth. It takes 90 minutes. 90 minutes, you're around the earth. So I'm like, man, this is how am I gonna drag this out? Gotta make these guys do something. <laughs> so usually SpaceX, when they go up for a resupply, it takes them about uh, 28 hours. Uh huh. basically the space station is catching up with the guy as you're going around. But the record is three hours. They just happened to time it right. And when the space station was where it was supposed to be, they went straight up three hours later, they were on board.
2: I'll remember that as I listen to the conclusion of the book, knowing that, uh, we didn't need to take two days to do laps around planet Earth to get there. But, uh, uh, crazy stuff. I guess I'm curious. Uh, you gave me a little taste of it there, but, um, what are Brad Taylor's thoughts on these billionaire industrialists like creating this? I know you said that it's not, they're not being a hundred percent genuine when they're like, we just want to further the advance of space. I mean, they're doing it because they're making money, but do we civilians? Actors, actresses, Tom Cruise, Samuel L. Jackson, a Kardashian. Do we have any business going into space?
1: I mean, yeah, but I mean, I think it's just a march of time. If you think, just look back, um, well, just start with the automobile. I mean, the only people who had automobiles, super rich people, had this, you know, the Iron Horse, then the airplane when it came around. The only people who could afford to fly anywhere were super rich people and they were flying off to their Playboy stuff. Now everybody flies. I mean, I think it's just a march of time. Eventually, people are going to be going to space. (laughs) going to get cheaper and cheaper.
2: Does it open us up though, with these space explorations and it being commercialized? Does it in fact, like in this book, open us up to a danger, like a second order effect that we didn't intend for, but now damn sure can harm our nation?
1: Yeah, I think you're always going to have risks like that. But to be honest with you, uh, it's a good thing. Because before SpaceX and Blue Origin and all those guys came out, uh, we canned the uh, space shuttle. And the only way we can get up in space is through the Soyuz stuff from Russia. In fact, the people are on the space station right this minute. Their Soyuz spacecraft, they're supposed to be home now, it broke. And so they can't get back. Uh, And so now everybody's talking about how are we going to get these guys home. It's not a threat or anything. They were supposed to be home, uh, I think it was a week ago, and they're going to have to stay until September or something like that when they can get a new spaceship up there to uh, dock and get them down. But we used to be, the only way we could get up there was through uh, the Russians. They're the only ones that were still launching. So it's kind of a good thing that we've now, okay, we've got some American capability that we at least own. So when SpaceX is building a rocket and NASA's there, they they don't tell NASA, you know, you don't tell us what to do. Yeah, NASA's going to tell you what to do. You're using their launch pad. You're going to their space station. They're going to tell you what to do.
2: Well, then I have a new opinion about its value intrinsically to the United States. I still think you're a Yahoo if you want to go vacation in space and float around for two days with Tom Cruise. But, I mean, I don't know. I I guess if you could hang with Tom Cruise for a couple days, it'd be pretty cool. I would call him Maverick the entire time and bust his butt never making it past (laughs) 05. Right. If we had to give the devil's ransom sort of a moral of the story for all Americans... Like so many of your books in the past have, uh, American Trader, the Chinese have ulterior motives. Um, your robot vacuum cleaner is actually sharing info with the Russians. TikTok is not something your kids should have. Um, is there a similar moral and a takeaway from the task force and Pike Logan's mission here to take out global ransomware and hacker people? Is there something that maybe the American could maybe just know is a danger in a new era that we're living through right now?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the, Really what I want is somebody just enjoy the book. I don't really set out to have any kind of, uh, you know, ulterior motive that uh, I'm going to write a real good book, but hidden in here is something I'm trying to tell people. Uh, it just ends up kind of turns out that way. And I think that if there was one moral for this, it would be ransomware is a real thing. It's a real deal. And the reason you don't hear about it too much is because nobody wants to admit they got hit by ransomware because two things happen. Number one, you're vulnerable now. People are like, that guy doesn't have good cybersecurity. But number two, you had to be stupid enough. Somebody in your office clicked on something. And so they really don't want to make a, a scene. I'll, I'll give you a good example. So I was on a TV show. I can't say who it was because they told me not to tell anybody. But that the network that this, uh, where this uh, TV show was on, I was talking to the guy who was going to interview me. And he said, yeah, we got hit by ransomware last year. And it locked them up for two weeks. They couldn't do anything. They had to, they're actually running their TV show out of one of the trucks that they had, you know, that, that go on scene somewhere because their whole studio was locked up. And at the end of it, he goes, but don't, don't, tell, don't bring that up in the interview. Uh, we don't want anybody. We're trying to keep that quiet. So people who get hit by ransomware don't really want to tell anybody they got hit. But it's happening all the time. And, it, uh, and no place is too small. Somebody's going to, you know, if, they, if you get hit with ransomware and you have uh, just a company with 10 people in it, you're going to pay. And they usually hit things that are uh, um, life support activities. So, you know, if you hit a hospital ransomware, the patients are going to die. Somebody's going to pay that ransom because they're not going to let all the patients die. Uh, Colonial pipelines, another good one. I mean, that was causing huge problems with the gas prices and everything else because they hit Colonial Pipeline. But it's an insidious problem. It's getting worse and worse. It's mm. getting worse and worse because now AI, artificial intelligence, they can just outsource the uh, malware code to artificial intelligence and it'll tweak it a little bit and are off to the races. The model people use now is that somebody's developed this malware package, Fancy Bear, you name it. There's all kinds of them out there. And they will rent it to you. So you go hit somebody with ransomware. Then when you get the ransom, you kick that back to me. And now when that, that attack is over, you give me back my code. So it's, I mean, it's a whole cottage industry, guys doing it.
2: And are these are these enemies members or, or residents of a specific nation? Or, or are these just rogue gangsters with, Tech acumen, traveling the earth and robbing and then partying and robbing and then partying.
1: It's it's both, as I was saying earlier. So if a nation state's doing it, nation state can do the uh, – um, they can go to the guy just like I was talking about and say, I want to rent your malware for five days. Give it to me. I'm going to hit it. I'll pay you back. Now when they, they do the code on it, the forensics of what got – who did the malware, they can tell where the code came from and they realize it's tied to this criminal gang, ransomware gang. But you can't really say, did Russia pay for this? Or is it just this criminal gang? It gives them plausible deniability to hit these things without the uh, fear of, I'm going to get hammered because they know it's me.
2: What's a greater threat to America and maybe even the world? Um, violent extremism or computer attacks?
1: Well, I think they're both hand in glove. They're just two different vectors of the same type. Of threat. I mean, we look at violent extremism because it's, you know, death and dismemberment and bombs going off and World Trade Center and that kind of thing. But if you hit, uh, you know, say a hospital chain and 200 patients died from kidney dialysis, you know, because of ransomware, it's a threat. It's an insidious threat. Uh, and when they, you know, you were talking about geolocation, that's one of the things I wanted to do in the book was generally we don't try to go after. We'll we'll put them under, you know, indictment. I'm going to indict this guy for doing ransomware, but we don't ever go chase him down. And so for them, it's kind of a non, it's not that much of a threat to them. The most that's going to happen to them is they're going to be blacklisted, which they don't care about anyway. Uh, and uh, they may not get their ransom. Never does it cross these ransomware gangs' minds that someone's going to put a bullet in my head. So if we f- started doing that every once in a while, then they'd say, well, maybe this is not worth it. This is not just zero-sum game here. If they get mad enough, they'll come after me and kill me. So that's kind of what I was doing that threat for.
2: Yeah. And I'm glad, almost wishing that in this aspect, your fiction was mirrored in real life, because every time they came across one of the hacker guys, you know, whether it was the task force members or the Afghani Taliban hunters that were looking for this treasure, every time the hacker guys just put their hands up, they're like, I just find location, I just find safe house, I only, I am just in charge of gateway key, like they don't actually ever expect to get a bullet in their head. Right. And you're right. Maybe if we were a little fiercer with the hammer on the whack-a-mole, uh, in your estimation, could we ever put a dent in it or is it truly whack-a-mole? You might pop one, but another but one would just.
1: Whack-a-mole. I mean, if you,
2: you just look at the drug industry to see how that is,
1: if there's money to be made, there's going to be criminals making money. So, I mean, we're, you look at the drug cartels in Mexico, that's because there's an enormous amount of money there. I mean, if there's money to be made, somebody's going to try and
2: make the money. Awesome, man. Well, the book is The Devil's Ransom. The author is Special Forces, former Delta, Lieutenant Colonel, Army veteran, Brad Taylor. I really appreciate your time, man. And uh, again, thank you for the thrilling ride that Pike Logan takes us on from Tajikistan to Croatia to the skies above America. All right. Thank you very much for having
1: me. And if anybody wants to read an excerpt, well, actually, excerpt of any of my books, they can go to my website at BradTaylorBooks.com. And there's free excerpts there to get a taste for it.
2: Nice. Once you get one, it'll be as good as that Croatian gelato, man. You're going to want more and more. Awesome stuff. Brad, always appreciate your time, my brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, Prime
0: members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week.
1: We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things
2: happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner.
0: Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondery Plus.